0: Hey there, and welcome back to Sex and the Sacred, where history, religion, and sexuality collide. I'm your host, Anna Zuckerman, and today, I'm here to introduce you to the heroine that bridges medieval and Renaissance history. Despite living less than 20 years, her devotion to God and country made her one of history's most glorified warriors. Likewise, her refusal to abide by female gender norms made her one of its most notorious and mysterious figures. You're listening to Sex and the Sacred, and today we're talking about the Maid of Orléans, who you might know as Joan of Arc. May 29th, 1431. A maid of 19 stands before thousands of peasants, noblemen, and clergy. The maiden is escorted to her pyre by the executioner. As the first flames lick the bottom of the wooden platform, A Dominican priest rushes forward to comfort the child. She has only one request of the sympathetic clergyman hold up the crucifix and remind her of her salvation so that the flames may not separate her from God in her last moments. The story of Joan of Arc's death has been told over and over again in many forms and media. In fact, the martyr's story has often been referred to as the Passion of Joan of Arc invoking the image of Jesus and his crucifixion itself. Her brief life was full of wonder, mystery, and military success, and her connection to God made her both powerful and dangerous. Okay, let's start with the basics. Before I get into the meat of the episode, let's do a quick rundown on the context that Joan would enter into when she made her public debut in 1429. The Hundred Years' War waged between England and France from 1337 until 1453. The war, which was split into three eras of active conflict, was fought over the French throne, the most powerful seat in Europe. The decades of war helped to solidify the national identities of both France and England, along with the other nations of Western Europe that became involved on either side of the conflict. By the time the French successfully retained their throne in 1453, the medieval era was ending, and the Renaissance era of nation-states was beginning. There is so much fascinating history in this era, and more political intrigue than I could explain in a dozen podcast episodes. However, we've got a lot to cover today. If you'd like to learn more about the Hundred Years' War, visit www.sexandthesacred.com and check out the show notes. I'll leave some sources for you. Okay, on to Joan. Our heroine was born in 1412, in a small village near the front lines of the war. Her childhood is marked by historians as being remarkably religious. When Joan began to hear voices in her head, she attributed them to St. Michael, St. Catherine, and St. Margaret. The three French saints reportedly instructed her to attend confession and, more importantly, to serve France. At age 17, she left her village and set off for Chinon, dressed in men's clothing and accompanied by guards who were to guide her through war-torn France to meet the Dauphin Charles VII, heir to the French throne. When she arrived before him, Joan begged Charles to accept her aid in the war effort, claiming that she could expel the English troops from Orléans, a French city long occupied by enemy forces. Charles laid a series of tests and interrogations before Joan and, after several weeks, determined that she truly was an agent of God. He granted her the resources she requested and sent her on her way. Sure enough, Joan would prove to be a military success. After reclaiming Orléans, she continued for the next year and a half to challenge and overtake English troops. The French people, who for so long had been struggling to hold back enemy lines, no longer viewed the English as invincible. Joan's military campaign revitalized French national feeling and re-inspired French troops. Here's where things start to go downhill. Whenever she returned to the Dauphin's side, at the end of each campaign, Joan would urge Charles to reclaim Riem, the city where French rulers could be consecrated and made kings. Charles, however, hesitated every time, and eventually, as you might have guessed by now, Joan's luck ran out. Captured in battle against the Duke of Burgundy, Joan was taken and held by English forces. Charles, who was attempting to arrange a truce with the Duke, did not make any recorded efforts to have Joan released. In fact, Joan would only leave English custody for a short while when she jumped through her cell window into the castle moat below, desperately trying to return to Charles independently. She was quickly recaptured and would spend her last remaining months in confinement. The details of Joan's trial have survived the last 800 years and are available to read on the show notes page. While she was captured as a military prisoner, Joan was tried and charged for heresy against the church. The bishops of the English-held cities, it would seem, found Joan's claim of direct communication with God to be beyond the pale. On first arrest, she was charged with a whopping 70 offenses. Although she would only be tried for 12 of these, the nature of these accusations and the sheer number of them would make it clear that her trial would end inevitably with Joan's death. Throughout the weeks of her trial, Joan proved to be unmovable in both her beliefs and her determination to protect the Dauphin. She refused to answer a number of questions about her conversations with Charles, instead replying stoically, go on to the next question. She asked almost daily to attend mass and confession, and when told to wear women's clothing, promptly refused. When her trial finally ended, Joan was convicted of heresy and sentenced to be burned at the stake. Her death, however, did not put an end to her fame. To this day, the image of a short-haired girl with pious eyes, dressed in men's armor, reminds us of Joan's remarkable life. Alright, I think that's it for today's story time. And I can hear what you must be thinking right now. Joan's story is super interesting, and I get it, she's another medieval icon, but why is she on today's episode? Well, I'll tell you. Joan is the subject of today's episode because she's the most prominent example of non-binary gender expression that we have from the medieval era. Let's get into it. We know from historical records that Joan almost exclusively wore men's clothes for the last two years of her life. We don't know exactly why Joan preferred men's clothing. A number of scholars argue that this was simply a choice of function over fashion. Women's clothing was bulky, difficult to ride in, and most certainly impossible to fight in. However, most Joan scholars acknowledge that her choices of attire were more than just functional. They seemed to be personal. When Joan was imprisoned, she was given women's clothing and told to wear it. After a mere two or three days, she returned to her male dress, refusing to explain her choice to her captors. Her commitment to male clothing and male activities, since fighting in battle was at the time a singularly male action, contributed greatly to the church's distrust of her. It made her an anomaly, a mystery to be understood. Okay, let's pause here for a second. If you listen to the last episode, you'll remember that we have to be super careful in applying modern labels to historical figures. Just as we couldn't make the claim that Gilgamesh was or was not gay, we also cannot make any grand conclusions about Joan of Arc, her gender, or her sexuality. There has been research attempting to confirm whether or not Joan was transgender. These attempts are, in today's academic world, considered to have been inappropriate by past scholars. Joan was known as a woman and referred to herself as such. Therefore, the label transgender is not only anachronistic, but not really accurate to what we know of Joan. Here's what we can talk about. We can talk about the way that Joan presented herself publicly. Her outward expressions of gender are valid forms of evidence and Although we must still be careful with the labels we use, we can dissect the information we have based on what Joan herself projected to the world. Here's what scholars have found. We don't know whether Joan consciously identified as something other than fully female. However, we do know that she presented as male consistently for two years. Her outward presentation was marked by her clothing but extended as well to her actions and interactions with others. As a woman of nearly 20 years old, Joan would have been expected to be married and on the way to motherhood. Had she adhered to the behaviors prescribed for medieval French women, she also would have placed her devotion to God next only to her obedience to the men in her life. Joan clearly didn't follow these rules. Now, It's important to clarify here that Joan's independence doesn't mean that she identified as male. It just means that she would have stood out to her male peers as distinctly not female based on her actions. Her rejection of traditionally female assigned gender roles made her contemporaries uncomfortable. And that's why she made history. Susan Crane's book, The Performance of Self, Ritual, Clothing, and Identity During the Hundred Years' War offers a really great perspective into the world that Joan engaged in, and shows how her attire really could impact the way she was perceived by others. Joan's behavior is fascinating, because it challenges our idea of history as being unyieldingly rigid in regard to gender. Certainly, medieval Europe was not a place to be open about sexuality. However, There are far more examples of transvestism, homosexuality, and perceived gender fluidity than history has often claimed. In fact, Joan is rapidly becoming a symbol of a larger community that existed, albeit unknowingly, in the Middle Ages, not an individual anomaly within a strictly binary system. Let's get into that just a little bit. Historians have always had a difficult goal to achieve, to record and analyze the past without grafting our modern beliefs and experiences to it. Historians have struggled with that. In many ways, the study of history is a story of constant self-improvement and revision. Half of our job as historians is to redo or reanalyze the work of people who came before us, writing from a perspective far narrower than our own. Our job is to always look again, read again, and think it over just one more time. It's how we evolve as historians and modern people. This is exactly what's happened over the last 800 years when historians examine Joan of Arc. When historians first began studying the famous martyr, they believed the voices in her head to be either witchcraft or saintly blessing. And today, we know that she most likely suffered from epilepsy, causing the sound of what she believed to be external voices. In the past, historians viewed Joan's desire for male clothing to be a sign of deviant sexuality. Today, we acknowledge that Joan presented as male, but admit that she very well may have done so as a means to an end, not because it was related to her gender identity. See what I mean? History changes as we do, and it's essential for us to keep coming back to topics we've covered and to examine them one more time, pursuing the truth of the past. Before I leave you for today, I want to recommend some fantastic reading for any of you that want to know more about gender in the Middle Ages. Dr. Leslie Feinberg's book, Transgender Heroes, explores Joan's life and presentation, and places her in a history of heroes that all challenge our idea of the gender binary. Her work is thorough and convincing, and does a far better job of explaining how Joan fits into queer history than I could offer you today. I urge you all to think more on Joan of Arc and to sit with the ambiguity of what we know of her. Truthfully, we don't know much about how she viewed herself. We certainly don't know whether she identified as male, female, or non-binary, and yet we know that, at the very least, she challenges the gendered stereotypes we have of the Middle Ages. We know that Joan has earned her place as a queer icon and independent force in history, and yet her story is shrouded in so much mystery that we may never be able to truly give her a label. Truthfully, I'm okay with that. I like the fact that despite 800 years of analysis, we still can't pin Joan down long enough to keep her still. She's fluid, mysterious, and a symbol of enduring, burning faith. I don't think she needs a label, just credit for her autonomy in a world that was very much against her. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and learned a little bit about Joan of Arc and the history of well, history. Next time on Sex and the Sacred, I'll be telling you a tale as old as time, that of Mother Earth and Father Sky. Subscribe now to make sure you don't miss it. If you've enjoyed this episode and want to learn more about Joan or medieval transvestism, head to www.sexandthesacred.com where you can find the show notes for this and every episode. Likewise, if you'd like to get in on our super cool Sex and the Sacred t-shirts, mugs, and other merchandise, search for Sex and the Sacred on your Redbubble or Patreon pages, where you can find us and help support the show. That's all for now. I'm your host, Anna Zuckerman, and you're listening to Sex and the Sacred, where history, religion, and sexuality collide. Thanks for tuning in with me, and I'll see you next time.